Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, my name is Justin Hamilton and welcome to Big Squid. Today we're joined by Richard Fardler to help me discuss Chapter 11 of the Watchmen graphic novel. And if you enjoyed Richard's first appearance, you're in for an even better time with this edition. Uh, In case you missed it, I've gone all late 90s rave party and double-dropped two podcasts with the previous episode starring Ben Elwood. Uh, and together we recap Chapter 10 of the graphic novel. So if you somehow missed this, make certain you go back and catch up with that one as well. Uh, the reason for the double drop is so I can finish off the first script for Whovians, which debuts in early January. Uh, then I'm going to record the final podcast in this season for you before finishing the writing for my two shows for the Adelaide Fringe. Uh for those of you who may have missed it, there's a new John Tildanimus play, Time is the Fire, a surreal journey as John and his toy monkey Lou travel between memories as they attempt to outrace their enemy, the Frail. And there's Hamo, what's his name? Oh, a straight stand-up show, which, if you see the play, will have a little extra layer of meaning for you, uh, for all you perceptive ink spots out there. Yeah, I've decided I'm going to call you ink spots. Sounds good. I like it. It's a term of endearment for me, for you. Uh, you can find tickets for those at the Adelaide Fringe website and both shows will be found at the Rhino Room, my spiritual comedy home. And just so you know, I'll have the final episode of this podcast out over before the end of the year. I'll try to get it ready for you by next weekend. Uh, the final episode will be slightly different in form. So what I'm going to do is record the recap and the squid bits by myself. So we'll have a little one-on-one time. And then I'm going to talk all things Watchmen with a special guest, a guest who has never appeared on a podcast in any way, a guest who enjoyed the comic, but love the series, and that person is Andrea Gowdy, or as you might know her, my mum. That's right, she's uncertain about this whole endeavour, but I've convinced her it will be great, so you'll get to hear what a 66-year-old woman has to say about the whole shebang, and she has things to say, so it will be fun. Uh, I thought that would be a nice way to finish off this first season of Big Squid. Okay, enough announcements, let's chat with Richard Feidler about issues 11 of the Watchmen graphic novel entitled Look on My Works, Ye Mighty.
So we're recording this uh, the first couple of days of December. It's orange outside. It's quite scary with uh, with the amount of smoke, etc. And uh, and it does feel apocalyptic in many ways. And so I know you haven't watched the TV show yet. So I'm going to say this, and I'm saying this before the last two episodes have aired. So this will come out after it. But there's a possibility, Richard. Maybe the series is better than the graphic novel. That's pretty exciting, Justin. Yeah, that, that has me very excited indeed. The whole idea that 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 is that that well, I don't know. They're such different mediums, aren't yes, they? Yes, yes. It's uh, a bit unfair to compare. Yeah, and I, it's it's hard to sort of um, yeah. I think this well. I think the comic is so good. Yes, at being a comic. Yes, and when Zack Snyder turned it into a movie, right, adapted it so faithfully, it was bloodless. Yes, and it kind of uh, you know for people who haven't read the graphic novel but only seen the movie, I kind of uh, describe it as you know when you see a cover band do a really good job of a song by the darkness, but never realise that the darkness are funny. <laughs> you know, and it's like a, a, I think Zack Snyder never realised that the graphic novel is a satire And, you know, it is funny And there is, you know, some crazy stuff going on And, you know, his reasons for taking out the squid from the movie Because he thought it was a bit ridiculous Was a bit like, yeah, it's a bit ridiculous But that's kind of what makes it great at the same time Also, I think uh, in the graphic novel there's There's a different kind of symmetry yeah, work and symmetry is a word that's used often throughout the graphic novel. Yeah, insofar as there's pages of nine panels, and they work really well when you read them from top left hand side to bottom right hand side. Right, but they look amazing when you look at them on the whole page, uh, from bottom right hand side to the top right hand side. So, right. so looking at the whole the whole page from above. And within the individual panels is very rewarding in, in Watchmen. Yeah, and this is the thing you can do on the printed page you can't do on the screen, which is inherently linear. You, you you can't stop and think and flip back. So right. on the graphic novel, you flip backwards and forwards in time. It's the same constraints we have in radio. Radio is really powerful. It's really didactic, yeah, like it, but it's very linear at the same time. It sort of moves along like a like a train with carriages behind it, uh, and and it can move along with incredible velocity and can look amazing and all that. But it's still an engine with a bunch of carriages behind it, right. and it can't go off the tracks very, very easily at all, yeah. <laughs> if at all. Uh, so so it's, it's a bit like that. So movies movies uh, have the strengths and weaknesses of that. It has all the impact, that visual impact. But unless you really want people to be stopping and pausing and rewinding and saying, what did he say then? What does that mean? Oh, what was, does that, how does that reference back to when? Right. Uh, y- yeah, and you don't really want people to do that because as soon as you do that in a movie, as soon as you do that with a, a radio pro or a podcast, you step out of the world. Yes. You're out of the world and you're thinking about the structure and you're not immersing yourself you're not losing yourself in the narrative and that's one thing Alan Moore is very very good at at making you somehow really feel like you're in the moment of what's on the page so that's that's the problem there I think so it'll be so that's why I think it's probably odd to compare but nonetheless if you're saying all this stuff Justin look it seems to be uh, you know each episode uh, you know what they've done well which is not giving anything away for you but Alan Moore was the master of taking uh a title or a character and remixing it in a way that didn't, uh, you know, forget what came before it and gave you a new view into it. So like with Swamp Thing, he didn't say that any of the Swamp Thing stories before didn't exist, but he just gave it a little spin that made you look at it in a slightly different way. And same with uh, Marvel Man, Miracle Man, you know, it's like all those adventures happened, but he gave it a little spin that then allowed you to come and find a, a new way into the original work. 
And they've done that with the TV series. See, I like, I, I like to see, I think of that process as, this is a bit like uh, what happens in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Right. You know, she, she it begins with her in her, her sitting room with her cat and she's clearly fallen asleep, but she's now having a dream where suddenly the, the looking glass, the big mirror in the yep. living room, suddenly looks like a pool and she can travel through it. And then she goes into the looking glass living room and she sees it all from a different angle, sees it all from behind and right. everything's in reverse. And I think Alan Moore is very good at that. He sort of takes us into the looking glass land of Swamp Thing, the looking glass land of Miracle Man, so we can see what's really going on yeah. and, and get a different, slightly wilder version of the the origins and stories behind this character. And yet, while some of them are often really wild, they feel more grounded in reality often too, don't they? Isn't that odd? Yeah, that is a, that's a really funny thing, isn't it? Like Especially with something like Swamp Thing. Which suddenly, uh, you know, he felt relatable. <laughs> yeah. Even though you essentially said, nah, he's a plant with the memories of being a human being. And there was something about that that made you fall in love with the character more. By the time he took over that title, um, Len Wein's original idea for it had run out of steam. Right. And, uh, and Alan Moore said, okay, what is this thing? What is this thing that walks around? It's a giant vegetable, really. Um, yeah. Well, it's a kind of god. It's a plant god. Uh, and, and reinvents the whole story. Yeah. And it says, hmm, well, if he's a plant, he could have this distributed consciousness and he could just sort of let one body wilt and another one pop up somewhere yeah. else. And then what is the thing, what's the medium through which his psyche is travelling? Well, that's the green. What's the green? And then eventually Swamp Thing, you know, at some point gets assassinated and yeah. pops up on another blue planet. Yeah. Uh, wh- wow. Yeah. So, so all these ideas that follow, one seems to follow from the other, and he's got this mind that pushes it forward, pushes it further, pushes it further, and, and wants to take you on this journey with him. That's crazy, isn't it? It's. Uh, I remember very distinctly when reading that comic, remember he, uh, who is it? It's Nukeface, isn't it? Who's the, the, the villain who is uh, imbued with uh, toxic radiation and he He's drinking toxic radiation. Yes, yes. and yes. he and he burns Swamp Thing. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, I wonder how he's going to come back from that. And then it's a remember he's that tiny little plant that Abby is <laughs> growing. Yeah, he's got the squeaky little voice. Yeah, and Abby st- he starts saying, "I love you, Abby," and, yeah. and then she buries her face in her hands. And then he thinks she's crying, but then it turns out she's laughing because he sounds like Jiminy Cricket. That's right. Yes, it's so yeah. great. Uh, the, he never loses the humour in all of this uh, in this stuff as well. And vegetable sex. The, vegetable the, sex. The sex issue, the famous sex issue with yep. Swamp Thing and Abby where there's no intercourse as such. No. There's no uh, – but there is an exchange of bodily fluids. Yes, uh, <laughs> and, it's, uh, and it's a psychedelic affair. Yeah, it's great. That was mind-blowing mm. when uh, when you read it as, a, as a, a younger person. It's like, what is happening here? And it's always interesting to see these writers who come in and then, uh, you know, do this remix. And then often it's hard to follow, and often it's hard to follow because people try to either get, just get it back to what it was before, like they try to ignore – what uh, has made it a, a fuller and richer experience, or they try to go more weird with it rather than just build on the natural narrative. Well, here's I think some new rules for comics. If we're if we're just going off the track a yeah. little bit here, no more multiverses. <laughs> like it's not just the universe that's going to die; it's the multiverse. Yeah. Uh, stop that. Yeah. Uh, stop alternate versions of different superhero teams. I it's 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 so boring and bewildering. It's a way of um, well. What's next? The multi-multiverse, right? What's after that? <laughs> what is I next? Mean, raising raising stakes that we don't care about. Yeah, um, and it's also time to to have a moratorium on origin stories. Yeah, I, I don't want to see Bruce Wayne's parents being assassinated in or the kid, a shot dead in the street. Right. I don't want to see Superman rocketed from Krypton as a tiny baby anymore. Just leave it alone for ten years. Yeah, and try something else. 
Try something else. Yeah, exactly. We already know the language of it. Uh, it and it's it's funny what you're saying with this, which is the the analogues that are in this series kind of make it feel a little bit like, okay, well, this is this is done now. You know, you're taking it to that uh, logical next place and uh, just, just get into it. Yeah. Well, there are all these guardians that stand around the characters and yeah. some of those are, are the executives at the companies that own the copyright in right. Superman, Batman, yada, yada, yada. And then beyond that, there's even worse than that, there's the fans. Right. Who won't let characters grow, <laughs> yeah. who want people to make the same Star Wars movie again and yeah. again and again, uh, and, and who get really upset when you accuse them of that, and oh, God, whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, so then you eventually have to walk away from all of that. But So no wonder Alan Moore with Watchmen didn't want to deal with Charlton characters or existing characters, but create his own right. that were there for him to play with, that were there for him to... Uh, him to do what he wanted with, rather yep. than have people standing around them and trying to protect them, like you know, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I saw what was a Cap- Captain Atom. That's what. Um, That's right. That, it was Doctor Manhattan? It's based on. It's like oh, I read him when I was five, and you yep. mustn't change a thing about him. Well, forget it then. Create yep. Doctor Create Doctor Manhattan instead. Yeah, you can't make Blue Beetle impotent. Yes. <laughs> Stuff like that. Uh, well, hang on. Let's just do a quick recap of uh, this ep- uh, this chapter issue, which is issue 11, uh, entitled Look on My Works, Ye Mighty, where we discover Adrian Veidt. You've just discovered that it's Veidt, not Veidt. It's yeah. really, really thrown me. It's me nine years to get used oh to that, I think. Oh, my God. It's been really hard. Uh, Adrian Veidt watches on his monitors as Rorschach and Nighthound make their way towards his Antarctic retreat. As the snow swirls about them, the two masks discuss whether their old crime-fighting partner has descended into insanity, and if so, are they qualified to make that judgment? Ozymandias leaves his bank of televisions and heads to, into a control room. A time gauge reads, Eastern Standard Time, 11.25. This is very important. He pushes a button on the console and then announces to his associates that his work is now completed and they are to meet him in his vivarium to celebrate. Once there, Veidt recounts his life story. From a young age, he was intellectually superior to everyone, including his unremarkable parents. Once they died, he knew he didn't have any peers that could guide him and the only man he felt any kinship with was Alexander the Great. Uh, you know, go big, right? Go big. <laughs> go big. Yep. Inspired by this figure of history, he gave away his inheritance and travelled to northern Turkey so he could retrace his hero's steps and prove that someone could accomplish everything from nothing. Veidt travelled throughout the Middle East, Africa and Asia before returning to New York where he adopts the Greek name for Pharaoh Ramses II, Ozymandias, and begins his career as a costumed hero so he can fight all the evils of the world. He finishes his towel and looks to his associates, who are now all dead, poisoned by Veidt. He opens the vivarium dome, letting the blizzard overwhelm his tropical enclosure. Rorschach and Night Owl enter the retreat to find Adrian eating dinner. They attack him, but Veidt is too strong, too quick, and easily subdues the two masks. They settle into a conversation about his plans and he explains that he came to the realisation that fighting crime would never rid the world of evil when they attended the ill-fated Crime Busters meeting. In fact, it was the words of the comedian that resonated most, that the idea of crime fighting was pointless with nuclear war inevitable. With the Cold War escalating and the proliferation of more arms, there was no way to avoid one final conflict. Veidt formulated a plan to solve this dilemma, a grand hoax that would convince the world that it was under alien attack. This way, the governments of the world would stop attacking one another and unite to repel these invaders. He removed Dr Manhattan by giving all of John's associates cancer, which would force him into exile. He then used his vast fortune and intelligence to research advancements in the fields of genetics and teleportation. His plan was proceeding when the comedian accidentally found the secret island where Veidt and his people worked on a new monstrous form. 
Blake was overwhelmed by this information and one drunken night told their old enemy Moloch. But unbeknownst to Blake, Veidt had Moloch's home bugged and once he knew what Blake knew, decided to kill him. To throw Rorschach's suspicion off, Veidt orchestrated his own assassination attempt and pushed a cyanide capsule into the attacker's mouth to prevent him from talking. Veidt's final part of the plan was to teleport this life form, whose brain was cloned from a powerful psychic, into New York City. Since teleportation technology was limited, any living creature would immediately die of shock and explode. The psychic shockwave would kill half of the city's populace. When a, when a disbelieving night owl asked when Vite had planned on following through with this insane scheme, Vite replies that he did it 35 minutes ago. Boom! Ah, oh, what a great moment. On the streets of New York, where the two Bernards gather and so many uh, of the... Smaller characters that we've gotten to know, a white flash finishes this penultimate chapter. And the closing quote is from Percy B. Shelley's Ozymandias. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And uh, upon rereading this for the first time in a long time, I always knew the parallel with Dr. Manhattan and Superman, but I'm now seeing Adrian as an even more insane Bruce Wayne-Batman parallel. And I, I'm wondering, is super intelligence in the superhero universe doomed to just make heroes paranoid? <laughs> <laughs> Well, very probably. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I, for me, when I read this for the first time, I remember really holding this issue in my hands, mm. and I remember f having that delicious feeling of having my assumptions about the story and the characters just the floor of that just drop away when I right. sort of grand, began to perceive the ambition of the story here. Yeah, and that is through the character of Ozymandias. Now, yeah. up until this point, up until this point in the story. Uh, very cleverly, Alan Moore has shown us that Adrian Veidt slash Ozymandias, he's kind of like a Bono character or a, or a non-dark Bruce Wayne or something. Right. Um, a, a, a Richard Branson or someone yep. like that. Uh, made enormous amounts of money. Super smart. Yeah. Uh, wants uh, optimistic, rational solutions for the problems of the world. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice person. A liberal. Smaller liberal. Yeah. All those sorts of things. And then you realise, as, as he's called those young assistants in, to celebrate his victory, whatever that is, right, uh, with champagne in the vivarium, the the, the Antarctic garden he's built yeah. under the dome, and he starts telling them his life story, and as he does so, you see this butterfly fluttering around, right, and one of them lands on one of the assistants' champagne glass, and he doesn't move to move the butterfly, and he keeps telling the story, and then the butterfly sort of just lands right on his face, and he makes no movement. Yeah. And then you realise they're all dead. He's poisoned them. And you, you're wondering, what kind of a creature are we dealing with here? Right. Who is Ozymandias? And he's telling you through his biography. And he's not Bono. He's <laughs> not Richard Branson. He is, in fact, a, a, quite a recognisable figure from philosophy, I think, which is uh, uh, what Nietzsche called the Ubermensch. Now, I read a lot of Nietzsche when I was at uni, and there was the thing in my philosophy course that I really enjoyed the most. Right. So Nietzsche is the wackiest of all the modern philosophers, without a doubt, wrote insane books. With, yeah. Um, uh, he's got a book called Echo Homo. It's got chapters in it like, Why I'm a Genius. Right. Why I'm So Clever. That, that sort of thing. He would have done well in the uh, Twitter world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing was, he was clever. That, yes. That thing. He, was, he, he was a genius, and he was descending into madness, probably brought on by syphilis and and a broken heart because he was in a menage a trois that became a menage a deux and didn't bother to tell him. Right? So he the worst of the menages. The worst of the menages. That's right. 
It was like you're out of the band, son. That, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, so, so he, a lot going on in his mind. Nietzsche, Nietzsche, so here's the prototypical uh, Adrian Veidt is really the prototypical Nietzschean Ubermensch, and that was became clear to me as I was reading it. Now, this is who the Ubermensch is, uh, in, according to Nietzsche, as he wrote about. Uh, Thus spake Zarathustra. It's the new kind of human. Right. It's this new kind of human, as ape uh, is to man. Man is to the Ubermensch, the Superman, the new human, the uh, who is above and beyond. It's like, what are we reaching towards? Are we reaching towards this new, higher form of human? Well, that's the Ubermensch, a man who's, uh, and it is a man, of yeah. course, um, uh, who is so naturally kind of in command of in, a, a higher intelligence, uh, a higher sensibility, a higher aesthetic ideal. Um, uh, it's, it's just magnificent, right? Uh, and. He's not a slave to Christian morality. The Ubermensch is someone who's above all that. Uh, and the whole idea of Christian pity and compassion is just, it's like, do you have any compassion for snails? No, right. you don't. That's absurd to the Ubermensch. That's what Nietzsche's writing. Yeah. Uh, the Ubermensch is, he, he might, he, he can be generous out of a, a kind of an overflowing character right. and give this or that, uh, but not, not, uh, not this kind of lowly Christian compassion. That was he was at war with Christianity in that sense. Now Hitler's after he died, he went mad uh, and was in an asylum and died. And his sister, um, of course, was around in Hitlerian Germany, and she she said to Hitler, "Oh, my brother wrote all this stuff. He's clearly talking about you, my Führer." Oh, uh, right. So, so that's where the Nazi stuff. That's where comes the Nazi in. stuff comes in. But uh, and th- and that's kind of wrong, isn't it? Like they're looking at it incorrectly. Or oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. most of the time, you know, intellectually, they're morons. The Nazis. They were just practicing some kind of social Darwinism. That right. That the, the the history of the world is a race struggle. You know that that kind of stuff. Uh, Nietzsche, of course, wasn't having any of that. He didn't. He, he, there's no evidence he was a, anything like a racist, and certainly he despised anti-Semitism right. as the as the sort of hobgoblin of, of tiny, pathetic little minds. Right. So no, Nietzsche's kind of mad, but in his own way. Yeah. Uh, his stuff is kind of thrilling to read, and so so this is who Adrian Veidt is. This is who I'm beginning to realise he is. He's this man who knows. He's a bit special, right from childhood. Oh yeah, yeah. Like his parents die when he's young. Uh, yeah, his young. parents die when he's like seventeen or something, and he he comments on he doesn't know where he got this intelligence from because they're unremarkable. They're unremarkable. What, what a crazy. So they're people. Word. They're 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 the you know the the untermenschen and he's yeah. the übermenschen and and he um he learns early on to conceal his intelligence from his teachers because he realizes it's a threat to them. Uh, then his parents die and he inherits a fair bit of money, just gives it away. Yeah. Because he wants to reinvent himself from first principles. And then takes his inspirations, as you say, from Alexander the Great, mm. one of the most um, startling and extraordinary figures in the history of the world who died, I don't know, 4,000 years ago, three, 4,000 years ago or something like that. And, uh, and, and that's the model of his character. That's who he wants to be. And he, and he says he, he, he dedicates himself to doing something extraordinary so that if he bumped into Alexander in the Hall of Legends, he would have something to say to him. Right. Now, what kind of a human being thinks up a sentence like that? <laughs> have you ever had that thought in your life? Mm, I, Justin yeah. Hamilton, must achieve something great in this world, so should I bump into Alexander in the Hall of Legends, I might have something to say to him. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd have to say to him, did you ever read Watchmen? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would, I'd, yeah. Be, I'd be struggling. That's not the sort of thought a normal person has. It's the thought of an Ubermensch. Right. Uh, and so that's what I was thinking as, as I was reading this. And, it, and, and following his life arc, you know, where he gets rid of his money, becomes an adventurer, right. um, follows the trail of Alexander and his extraordinary career and exploits as the greatest conqueror of the ancient world, probably of all time, really, in many ways. Uh, and and uh, 
and and becomes a, a costumed hero. Yeah. And then gives that away uh, to start the Veep Foundation and then thinks he'll do something more than that and go to the next step and realises... He he'll have to save the world. Yeah, and the the uh, it's interesting because um, the Ubermatch is infused in uh, Alan Moore's work in a way because it's a uh, the the first um, old Marvel Man story that he reworks. So it's uh, it, it ends on a the uh, Nietzsche quote of "I am the Superman, I am the Lightning." So that that uh, idea was already in earlier work. And kind of comes to fruition here through Adrian, doesn't it? There's a marvelous thing in the beginning of "Thus Spake Zarathustra," which is which is a book Nietzsche wrote to illustrate the point of the Ubermensch, and he writes it like as a kind of a piss take of the Bible. Right. Uh, so there's these villages, and from the mountains comes this great priest Zarathustra, and he says, "Behold, I teach you the Overman, the Superman, That's the right. Ubermensch. Behold, yes. I teach you him. Uh, man is something to be overcome. What have you done to overcome him?" Yes. And then he predicts a different kind of future. He said, uh, there's, there's the world. It is empty and, and barren, and upon it hops the last man. Now, the last man is the opposite of the Ubermensch. Uh, right. What is truth? What is beauty, says the last man. And he blinks. You know, this figure, this wretched, cultureless, bland, KFC-eating, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, TV-watching... He sort of sees that kind of person before before it's time, right? And he blinks and hops upon the f- surface of the earth, yeah, and is blind to beauty and and truth. And he says, just as uh, if a human being would look upon an ape, he says, as a, an embarrassment, as a kind of a parody of its of itself, a kind of a strange acting out of what it means to be fully human. So are we to the Ubermensch, right? So that that's what's what's at work there in that kind of thinking. And was Nietzsche popular? Uh, was he a popular author at the time, or was it, was his work kind of discovered like many uh, important writers well past their death? He had an audience, but not a very big one, and it grew after after his death. Right. And the circumstances of his death are incredible. Like having preached this this philosophy of the of the Ubermensch. Uh, we think he was syphilitic. His mental health was declining. He was writing insane books. And, and, and considering everything he'd written about pity, uh, his breakdown is completely fascinating. Because the story goes, he was sitting, he was living in Switzerland and sitting in a square uh, at a cafe and he saw a horse being badly beaten by its master, like cruelly beaten by its master. Right. And Nietzsche, so the story goes, leapt out of his chair flung his arms around the horse and burst into tears and begged the man to stop hurting the horse. Right. That was part of his total mental breakdown. Yeah. And then he went into a uh, mental institution where he wrote letters, classic schizophrenic letters, where he right. said, I, I am the risen Christ. Um, things are fine. Yeah, right. I am the risen Christ. Yeah, and everything's going to be okay. And then died 10 years later. Uh, right. Meanwhile, there was a bigger and bigger audience for his work, which is so startling and original. Right. And apparently, in, you know, it translated in English is amazing, but written in the German, apparently it's like real, really powerful literature. It's right. Like considered real, the height of German writing. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's interesting. The um, uh, I've got some uh, more questions about Alexander the Great, but before I do that, I'm curious to know uh, what were your first thoughts when you got your hands on issue 11? Uh, and it was that completely white page with the blood-shaped drop of colour. Do you, do you remember the impact that that cover had on you because because uh, I was reading uh, that Dave Gibbons originally just wanted a completely white cover he didn't want anything else and then he looked at the proofs and it just looked like a a, a printing mistake so then he decided I'll just add this little bit of color there 
Well, there's yeah, there's this kind of blotchy it's bit the, of a butterfly in greenery, and yeah. it's all that white, and and you wonder what is it. I said, oh, yeah, it's a mystery. Yeah, I, I, and and of course by now I'd read enough of Alan Moore. I read his Swamp Thing, and I'd read um, um, a few of his other stories with yeah. these comics. And and you just know that from that image of a completely white cover, other uh, uh, with this kind of strange patchy image of a butterfly and some greenery behind it that there's going to be an explanation for this oh, whole yeah. narrative and I, I love that I yeah. think it's great I, it's, it's one of those there's very few you know like imagine the amount of comics we bought over the years but I can remember seeing that on the on the stand when it when it was released and being almost you know Oh, it, a, I was excited that it was there because it was late as they were getting more and more late and, you know, yeah. it was before the internet so you didn't know when things were turning up and then to see that white cover and it was like, oh. And, of course, that's the that's the exact image uh, and shape at the end yes. when the explosion happens but it's the two Bernards hugging each other making that as well. That was That was something mind-blowing to me as a kid. To me, it makes me wonder whether Vince Gilligan uh, you had read Watchmen because oh, yeah. you think of how many episodes of Breaking Bad open yeah. up where he was so good at this or the, whoever yeah. directed those episodes were at really looking hard at something yeah. right at the start of each episode and have you wondering what what am I looking at? Yes. What exactly am I looking at? Like that thing that started for so many episodes which was a bit overdone in the end which was the you know the purple teddy bear in the pool. Oh yeah. Or the the head of La to- uh, 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 El Tortuga, or what, what his oh, name yeah, was, yeah. on top of the severed head, on top of the back of a tortoise as yeah. it's plodding forward, um, and or the or the two uh, brothers, the hitman, right. who are crawling, crawling towards the shrine, yeah, and 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 that's the sort of thing that Alan Moore can do so well in the comics, and I, I just love that. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I think always the obligation in any form of art like this. Um, particularly visual art, like movies and TV and comics, is that you've always got to be showing us something new. Yes. Show us things we haven't seen before. And and that's what Alan Moore is very good at with this. Of course, uh, I, I think uh, it's not just that with uh, Vince Gilligan as well, but the third to last episode, which is entitled Ozymandias, has the moment with Hank where uh, Walt's begging for his life and Hank says it's no use. He made up his mind 10 minutes ago. Of course. And it's like uh, there was all these moments where you'd be, you know, when you when you have read something so often and, you you know, you see them popping up in these different kinds of uh, art forms, it was really exciting. It's like, oh, that was, a, that was an Adrian moment, you know. Yeah, you th- what you think is the crisis. Yeah. It, it, it's not the crisis. It, yeah. The crisis is already... Has already been fixed or, yeah. or, or passed. That moment has already passed, and the shock of that—that that yeah. becomes the the registering of that becomes the the, the powerful moment. It was uh, that's how I knew uh, when I was watching Lost that I knew Lindelof was a fan because it was uh, many of the episodes were single person experiences, and then uh, there was the uh, episode where Desmond fl- is flashing back and forward through time. And at the at the time, I was like, oh my god, that's there, Doctor Manhattan episode which has turned out to be right but I love seeing Alan Moore's just kind of you know I guess he wouldn't be known in the mainstream but his work is known and he's uh, anonymous taking the Guy Fawkes masks and you know the, the the smiley face in the in the rave generation like he he's got his fingerprints throughout yeah. modern a, history a, as Joy Division and Velvet Underground are to rock and roll Alan Moore is to uh, to the movies in yeah. so many different ways yeah, you know not I don't know how many people would know who he was but all the important people have read the stuff. And, yes. And his work sort of uh, pops up uh, for good or ill 
in, yeah. in, in major Hollywood films, TV series and the like. Yeah. Um, so uh, getting back to Alexander the Great, on page four we see a painting of Alexander confronting the Gordian knot and uh, I felt like you could tell us about that historic tale. Yeah, well, the story of this goes, this is part of one of the many legends that surrounds Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, just to, just off the top of my head, I'm not a student of his, of, of this, this particular bit of history, but what I know of him is that he's born in Macedonia. Now, this is after the great Periclean, Athenian, Greek... Uh, city-states but he's born in Macedonia in in northern Greece I suppose that's what we call it now and he's he's his tutor is Aristotle right Aristotle was his was his teacher right that's, that's we know that for a fact that's not that's not a legend or a myth of any kind so he's he's taught in that's that's the kind of thing that you would see in a TV show you go oh, come on do they yeah. all have to know each other yeah, well it right. turns out they do turns out they do yeah you wouldn't <laughs> believe it yeah so Aristotle is his teacher and uh and his father is, I think, King Philip of Macedonia, who is it's one of those great dynamics where the father, he's had a bit of success as a mm. bit of a smash and grab uh, Viking of a king, if you like, mm. uh, and knows his son has got more talent than him. Right. And tries to sort of hold him back. But in the end, of course, Alexander is just that ubermensch. He has that overweening power and charisma, forms a great army, a great conquering army, goes to Egypt. And in Egypt, he, he overthrows the rule of the, the ancient vastly ancient rule of the pharaohs yeah. and installs a Greek pharaonic dynasty and creates the city of Alexandria. Right. The port city of Alexandria, named after him, as so many other places like uh, are throughout um, Central Asia as well. And uh, puts in the, the, the Ptolemies, you know, the, the, the Ptolemaic uh, 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 dynasty of the, of, of the pharaohs, of whom Cleopatra is one. Eventually. Right. She's one of the last ones. Uh, so he does that. Builds Alexandria, which goes on to become a, the most beautiful city in the Mediterranean in the ancient world. Is that where the library is from? It's where the Great Library is yep. as well. I don't think he builds that, but uh, nonetheless, that's the thing that happens there over time. It becomes yep. this great centre of, of civilization and learning and, and beauty and art and all those things. Right. Mathematics and astronomy and all, and all sorts of other things. And he keeps going with his army. As, as far as I'm aware of this, keeps going east, east and goes uh, through Persia and through modern-day Afghanistan where uh, I th there are cities there, like I think it's Isfahan, I think is, is their version of Alexandria. Right. Uh, all sorts of cities in Afghanistan that are named, uh, places that are named for him. And he goes into the Indus Valley, into what is now India. And he conquers part of that, I think. I have to double-check all this. But, but anyway, he, 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 he cuts a swathe through the world like no one else has done and no one else will do until we get to uh, maybe Attila the Hun or uh, Genghis Khan further right. down the track. So, so he's an extraordinary figure. And then he dies in his 30s. Having it's conquered. 33, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, Con the, Jesus most, the, the Jesus year. Yeah. And so he becomes this hugely significant legendary figure. Everyone in the ancient world in the Mediterranean knows of Alexander the Great. Right. His legend is a thing that goes right throughout the Roman Empire to the point where uh, Hannibal the Great, you know, the guy who brought the uh, elephants over the mm. Alps to attack yeah. Rome, uh, was beaten off by Scipio the Great, another right. great Russian, Roman general. And there's a debate that happens where they argue who's the second greatest general of all time. Because <laughs> it's definitely Alexander is yeah. number one and no one can ever possibly dispute that and no one can possibly equal his achievements. Right. So that's the kind of status he has and that's why he's such, a, such an influence. And that's why the name of the character, Ozymandias, is so appropriate. Like He has the Greek name. Yeah. His Egyptian name is Ramesses II. Yeah. He's, he's one of those Ptolemaic king, uh, right. pharaohs of Egypt, one of those Greek pharaohs of Egypt. 
but he uses the Greek name instead, Ozymandias, King of Kings. So, so the name is really well chosen here. Yeah, I think, in this case, and the and the Gordian knot is oh, an example I of. I didn't even get to that, did I? Oh no, that's sorry. Right. But it's an example of lateral thinking, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. 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 The let. Sorry, I got right off on a tangent. No, there. it's great. Um, and you've done exactly the right thing, bringing me back to the question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the legend of the Gordian knot is that he arrived in the town of Gordium, uh, the settlement there, and they had a puzzle, which was a, a, a some uh, twists of leather, apparently leather straps that were tied together so tight, right. I think water was involved in making them so tight, that no one could untie them. No one could untie them. And it was sort of held as a kind of a great challenge that uh, he could cut the Gordian knot. It was like you know, pulling the sword from the stone was destined right. for greatness. And Alexander, Alexander turns up, looks at the Gordian knot, pulls out his sword and goes, and just cuts it. <laughs> right. right. Lateral thinking is... Yeah. as. Uh, Quoting Edward de Bono in, uh, in in the Watchmen comic itself, so that's his way of being cut through. Right. It's like that moment, um, that famous moment. Have you seen the movie Patton? You know, with George C. Scott as as Patton. Oh, no, I haven't. No. There's a great moment in that where General Patton, George Patton, and he's he's, he's trying to get the American army through uh, through Italy, through Sicily, I think it is. Yeah. And and the whole of his army is being held up because there's a farmer with a donkey on a bridge. That won't move, and he and he he realizes that the whole convoy is being held up, and he goes, "What the hell's going on here?" Right. And he goes, "Oh, you know, God, this can't get this farmer to move with his his donkey, and it, it's just a nightmare." And Patton pulls out his revolver and shoots the donkey in the head. Right. And says, "Now get this moving." Right. So that's his Gordian knot moment. Yeah. But all the troops are going. Oh. <laughs> that. that was this guy's livelihood. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you know, he had a war to win. Yeah. Right. Wow. I, I know that film. I uh, didn't he win? Uh, didn't George C. Scott win best actor? Best actor for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Vite talks about Alexander's dream to unite the world and his, and uh, how he sing quite heroically as a, an enlightened liberator. Yeah, of the world. that's drawing a boat, longbow. Right. Well, that's that's my question. Is uh, is it true that he wanted to create a piece that was you know, for, you know, better than a constant war. But there is a work by the British classicist Sir William Woodthorpe Tarn. Um, he kind of does a re- bit of rewriting of history. And is that what's taken place? I, I think every conqueror, great conqueror, says they want to bring a world of peace and unity under their rule. Yes. Like, I, I will conquer the world so I can bring upon a new age of unity and uh you know, uh, that was Hitler's vision. Right. Uh, yeah, certain unwelcome people would have to leave, of course. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not saying that was Alexander's proposal, but nonetheless, no. that's just a common thing for dictators. They justify, for, they come up with high moral, high sounding moral reasons so for, that they can take what they want to take yeah. and have their adventures that they want to have. Uh, certainly, though, as a conqueror, he did do enlightened things. Right. Like building cities like Alexandria, which were a kind of a marvel and, and a great boon to the world. But I don't know. Does the world really need an army from where? Macedonia. Right. Hacking and slashing its way into India. What are you doing there? Right. And he's still killing lots of people. He's killing a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of his people are getting killed uh, in, out of uh, what, what is essentially a vanity project. Right. And didn't, isn't the rumour that like his, his death is just kind of shrouded in secrecy, but isn't there a, uh, a theory that he was poisoned, which is therefore quite delicious irony as... Adrian is poisoning his his workers. He's kind of leaving that little bit of the story out so they still have a drink. It's like he's undone by Untermenschen. Right. You know, he's the Ubermensch undone by small-minded, petty people. Right. You know, what does he have time to check his food? Does yeah. He have, you know, he's got bigger things on his mind than to be paranoid and worried about, uh, 
what he eats and who prepares his food for him. Right. So that's how the little people get to you. You know, yeah. that's how they bring you down. That's how they tear you down. Right. Uh, but Veidt is determined not to be brought down by such little people. Right. What would have happened, do you think, if Alexandra hadn't died at 33? Do you think he would, would he have, where would he have gone from there? It's hard to say, but but people like that don't tend to say, go, well, that's enough. Yep. Uh, done. Done. I'm, uh, now, uh, now I'm going to build a veranda. He, he had a classic case of what's known as imperial overstretch. Right. I mean, you know, where are you going to run this? this are you going to run Persia or India from... Macedonia? Yeah, or right. You're gonna have to. Well, you'll have to send in a viceroy, won't you? Like a, yeah. someone to rule in your absence. And what happens when that guy gets the idea that he ought to be king of India? Right. Um, oh, all would have uh, all would have come collapsing down on top of him in a great big heap. I mean, these great when you, when you build a kind of world empire in a single lifetime, it never ends well, does it? No. If if, if anything, uh, you know, bad for his health, but good for his legend that he got taken down at thirty three. Indeed, what if he, got, you know, it's like a rock and roll star dying young, isn't it? What yeah. if he got fat and old and died of, you know, of an extreme bout of flatulence or something? <laughs> you know, well, what, would would he be in the hall of legends then? Would Ozzy Mandius have something to say to him then? He went full Johnny Depp. Yeah. We we're like, oh, ah, yeah. no. Yeah, he was great. What happened? <laughs> what happened? Everyone just like, oh, he's just started wearing those silly hats. Yeah. Alexander putting on these plays. They're awful. Yeah, dis- yeah. invaded Italy, <laughs> discovered cheese. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't the same after that. It just yeah. wasn't the same. Right. Uh, so I, does Veidt learn the correct lessons from Alexander, which I'm, you know, you've pretty much answered this, which is uh, has he learned the correct lessons or is he essentially just creating a narrative that suits himself, which is, I guess what? Alexander was doing to a certain extent as well with this, I'm going to save the world, I'm going to do it my way. Uh, is a, yeah, I just kind of wonder if, uh, you know, that was Vite projecting what he wanted onto that oh, story definitely. to suit himself. Well, I, there's, there's always problems with that kind of idea. There, well, the, the idea, you've got a secret island, you, you're using teleportation technology, you're creating a giant... Um, uh, monster mm. uh, using the intellect of a what was it, a telepath or a, oh yes, a, a, an extremely powerful a, psychic, 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 yeah, etc., yeah, etc., etc. Et uh, and somehow uh, the comedian has seen it from a helicopter and and swam ashore and went, oh my god, I see what's going on here, yeah. Uh, and now he's sitting on Moloch's bed crying about it. <clears throat> I remember at the time going, really, but but to me, I suppose that's like those moments in Hamlet where. You know, there's stuff that happens off stage, right? You know, and that's what that's happening off stage here. Where, yeah. yes, he 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 got a boat and then was was overrun by pirates. Yeah. Pirates, you say? Yes, pirates. Yeah, S- silly plot silliness that happens off stage. Right. They don't really show very many pictures of what's happening on this island with all these yeah. brilliant people on it, and that's probably just as well. It doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. Because the whole point is to get to the idea, which is that you concoct an alien threat that's that's giving us such a shockwave, it forces us all to band together yeah. against the common threat. That's yeah. a really interesting idea, I think, Yeah, in, in the end. Uh, it's um, also like rereading the recap, like I uh, reading it out loud. It doesn't like, sound good. It sounds hilarious. Yeah. Like I, I think it is funny. I think it's intended to be funny as well because uh, it kind of, uh, you know, he says he's not a, um, what does he say? He's not a Republican serial villain. Uh, but he kind of is. Kind of is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's just not going. Ah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He is. I don't know if it's meant to be funny. I, I, I you didn't. Think, I, no. I always thought it was a satire. I think it's just a. It's a kind of an insane plot shortcut that gets you to um, where you want to be. Right. Interestingly, though, that monster 
the the tentacle monster. It's a bit like Cthulhu, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely, completely. It's uh, it it really taps into that um, that very uh, specific Lovecraftian mythology, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And the idea that that's a that's a kind of a source of dread and horror, yeah. Uh, and, and that creature, yeah, brings, it just projects all this. Uh, dread and horror onto humans like it's some kind of illness or something. Right. Like that. uh, that's over, psychically overwhelming for us all. With its one eye and its beak. Yes. It's the beak. Yeah, it's the beak. Yeah. That is <laughs> the, the weirdest yeah, part. Yeah, offer it a cracker, you know. <laughs> teach it some words. Yeah, like, teach it make words. friends. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. I'm from outer space. <laughs> <laughs> Just build around it in uh, New York and, yeah. you know, Be a tourist attraction. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Um on page 10, Veidt talks about eating a ball of hashish he'd been given in Tibet and how the visions he endured transformed and inspired him. Why, why is this a bit of a common theme in British writers, especially people like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, the, these characters that go off and have these, uh, <laughs> these drug-induced visions? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask about this because I have never had hallucinogens in my life. Right. The closest I've had was been giving a shitload of morphine when I was in hospital after I got badly burnt once. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah. But it wasn't hallucinogenic really. No. Not really. It sort of it was affected my perception, but yeah. not, not heavily so. Gave you a hankering for Iggy Pop's Lust for Life. Yeah, exactly. You know? exactly. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> Very odd. Um, uh, but uh, recently I interviewed a guy called Robert Pollan who's written a book about um, uh, psychedelic drugs. Uh, right. Because there's... Um, Psychedelic drugs have turned out to have all these therapeutic possibilities. Right. And this was being discovered quite early on after the discovery of LSD and I think it was in the 1920s, wasn't it? Uh, and more and more medical research was being done. The, the fly in the ointment here was Timothy Leary, who right. picked it up and said, this is the thing that has the power to transform Western consciousness. And tune in, turn on, drop, drop out. out. Is that, have I got that right? Uh, maybe I have. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and he said, this is the power to undo Western civilization. If we if we all take this and and there are two problems with that, according to Robert Pollan. The first thing is uh, 
this goes against all the accumulated wisdom about taking psychedelics that have been accumulated over thousands of years, which says you really should have a shaman next to you right. to guide you through that experience. Right, yeah. Rather than just taking it at a rock concert while the Stones are playing <laughs> right. on your own and just you know, seeing what happens or dropping it into someone's drink, which is a, which is a monstrous thing to yeah. do so they don't know what's happening, happening to themselves. And the second thing is this, this language from Timothy Leary persuaded uh, the U.S. establishment that this was a threat to capitalism. Right. And hence there was this kind of moral panic about um, LSD. Don't, uh, and it, it was shut down. It was made illegal. And medical research into the therapeutic benefits of LSD was put on ice for something like 30, 40 years. Right. And it's only in the last 10 or so years that in uh, various hospitals in the United States that they're trying uh, to use therapeutic drugs, uh, psychedelic drugs for therapy. Right. Uh, particularly, uh, I'm sure you probably heard of microdosing being used to treat depression, yep. microdosing of uh, LSD. But it turns out um, people who are dying, mm-hmm. who uh, have a terrible fear of death, if you give them shitloads of psilocybin or LSD and give them a shaman or someone to sit beside them and hold their hand and tell them, give them advice on how to travel through this trip, it has this enormously positive effect on people. Apparently. Right. It allows them to confront all sorts of things. It annihilates the ego allows you to sort of see things about yourself and, and has all these therapeutic benefits. So people have, who are dying who've had this stuff come out of it saying, oh, my God, oh, that's the best thing that's ever happened to me and I'm no longer afraid of dying. Right. And they die like angels, apparently. Right. This is all the stuff is really interesting. So, so that's where I'm at with this stuff at the moment. Uh, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore talking about this stuff, they will talk about it the same way that Robert Crumb talks about psychedelics, which is that um, he said, Robert Crumb always said there was a moment, all the... the when it comes to his life and his work, it's all there's the marker is pre LSD and post LSD. Right, and you can see all those comics he did in the early seventies, which are completely done on shitloads of acid. They they don't really make much sense, you know? right. and they're kind of repetitions of comics he drew as a kid, and they, they they sort of bump along. But it sort of opened his mind to alternate realities, the idea of the immortality of the soul. Uh, and the sheer strangeness of the world as well. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's probably what gives both those writers who who in so many ways are so much alike but are alienated from each other by the vanity of small differences. Oh, yeah. um, uh, It's what gives them that sideways look at the world, that sideways imagination to think that the thought that reality is unstable. Right. Or not as stable as we think it is. uh, Have you ever seen that uh, YouTube clip of Grant Morrison explaining uh, what... Uh, I'm, I'm going to ruin this because it's, it's a longer explanation, but saying... Pop magic? Uh, no, this is about uh, humanity. So we're all, like, we're all, uh, you know, there was the first cell and then that split and then that split and split and it keeps going going. And if you could look from, you know, that... He always has that idea of looking from uh, a higher dimension down. What you would see is the first cell just growing and growing and growing and we're kind of like fingertips. People are like fingertips at the end of uh, this one vast organism. And then you, that bit of the fingertip just kind of stops at some point, but it keeps growing through other uh, generations of people, etc. Which is it's uh, definitely something you got on a trip, isn't it? That uh, idea? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like, if someone knows how to draw that, could they please do so? Yes, please. That'd <laughs> I would, be great. I would find that fascinating. The isn't there a theory as well that magic mushrooms are the difference? Uh, what kickstarted humanity? I've read where that, uh, you know, everyone's kind of hanging out and then suddenly, uh, you know, our ancestors suddenly, oh, what's this? Start eating and then just, wait a minute, 
how good would an iPad be? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it grows from there. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting theories about yeah. that that suggest that yeah, it, it's our interaction with psychedelic plants that gave us a whole new insight into ourselves, give us a better concept of time, um, maybe the thing that helps us uh, remember the past and anticipate the future, all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's all that stuff's really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm surprised that they – isn't it weird that, you know, you, you, you get scared of these things and then you just don't do any more research? And it's like, well, surely you would just, even if you're like, surely you just do a bit more research. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. But if if this is the substance that's going to un, unpick the thread of um, the United States, right, uh, at a time when it's going through the Vietnam War, yeah, and a whole generation of young folk are listening to their wild hippie music and yeah. dancing in the nude, yeah. Um, well, well, you know, stomp it looks plausible. It. Yeah, stomp yeah. on it. Yeah. Stomp on it. Um, what was your reaction when you realised that that panel, I think it's from the second chapter, where Veidt's looking at the half-burn map of New York is literally the panel that inspires the whole story. That was one of those mind-blowing moments when you, once again, you pointed out to me before we started recording, every time he's recounting his history, his back's to us. Yes. So we see that panel with his back to us yes. as well. Which is really fascinating. Yes, and so that's I, I, I've been thinking about that. All those panels where he's narrating his life story, mm. we see him from behind, often mm. often in silhouette. Um, he's standing there or sitting, and we see him as the boy growing up to the man, and it, we don't see his face. Mm. We we see him from behind, and I, I've been thinking about that, and I think it's devilishly clever. The only only conclusion I can have is that. Is that Veet is seeing himself. He's looking over his own shoulder. So he's not inhabiting his own body. Right. He's 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 floating above himself. Right. So there's something godlike about him. Right. And, and his perspective on him on himself. He has that enlightened detachment. Yeah. So he can float above himself almost. That's that's my best theory. On yeah. That. That's interesting. It's it also makes him fascinating, uh, you know, I was thinking in many ways he's, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne taken to the nth degree. But uh, I guess he's also like a, a relaxed Lex Luthor as well. Like he's, I think he's more like Lex Luthor. Yeah. I think, uh, Bruce, Bruce Wayne wants to be Batman so he can take down criminals one at a time. Right. right? Um, so, but Veet has that moment when he's staring at the burning map. Yeah. And when we first see that, it's issue two, is it? I think, yeah, I think issue so. Issue yeah. two, very early on. And he looks heartbroken. Yeah, I, I think I just assumed he's a bleeding heart liberal who doesn't want, who's broken by the cynicism of the comedian who set right. fire to the map, who's disappointed and saddened by by that. But now we know the reason why he looks like that is he's just realizing the futility oh, of yeah. knocking out crime one criminal at a time and wants a more holistic approach. Yeah. So I, I just love that the way we come back and we go. That's that's not what I thought that scene was. Right. Yeah. That scene is something else. Yeah. Yeah, we totally misread it, mm -hmm. and it's great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that Veidt has already carried out his plan was that shocking revelation when we first read it. How did you feel realising that all those ancillary characters that we'd been kind of following all the way along are suddenly going to be wiped out? Well, by, by the time they're due to be wiped out, they're so annoying, I'm kind of glad. <laughs> right. They are. You know, Malcolm the psychologist. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's getting into an argument with his wife. And both of them are really tiresome people. Yeah. Um, the, the, 
the top knot and her girlfriend, the taxi driver, yeah. are having a, a fight. She's beating up her top. I mean, but they're both really annoying people. Even the newsstand guys, you know, he's well known as welcome a bit. So, is that a bit horrible, Justin? Probably is a bit horrible. <laughs> but they are just fictional but characters. It's it's uh it is funny. It's a um. The, one of the things that has been perceived as a criticism uh, of the graphic novel in hindsight is that, you know, essentially the only African-American people in it are the, the classic psychiatrist trope with the wife not getting it and the young fella, uh, which is when you get to the TV series, you'll be fascinated to see how race plays an important part in uh, setting this world... Uh, Right, and fleshing yeah, it out. I've heard some hints about that. That yeah. sounds really interesting. I was trying to talk really vague. Very, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. I, I suppose the only thing I'd say in, in Moore's defence here is that he's dealing with tropes about superheroes right. from the 1940s and 50s right. yep. and 60s. When Who's the first black superhero? Is it Black Panther? Or is it uh, Black Light? It's not Black Lightning, is it? So no, I feel like it's Black Panther, or isn't it? Or is it the it? Falcon? I don't know. I feel like it's Black Panther. So, so it's it's you need to get yeah it's either it's Black Panther and maybe the Falcon and yeah. and maybe Luke Cage as well yeah so, so th- that's the seventies yeah by the, by then yeah so he's dealing with those tropes it by by right. I suppose that's and they're, and they're white superheroes yeah uh, was there a club you could have in the United States uh, which dealt lived at such an elite level like the Crime Fighters of America or whatever their organization is that allowed yeah. black members yeah no. I'm not sure. I don't think that's the point he's making. But no, I, no, but no, he's, not he's at dwelling all. in that world. Yeah, exactly. It, it, uh, that's why you know I'm reluctant to call it a. You know, it, sometimes you have to look at things in context. So I, I agree. I, I'm uh, yeah. You can. You, I suppose you can shout at shout at the politics of art from the 20th first century. Right. Uh, and this is something that was made what 35 years ago now or yeah. thereabouts, isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay, but uh, I, don't, I don't think it gets you very far. No. I think it's more interesting to sort of inhabit the imagination and critique it. Right. That's what yeah. I think anyway. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're going to love the series. Okay. Uh, <laughs> keep talking very vaguely about it. Uh, I've got some uh, quick little squid bits here. Um, I think you wanted to say something about this. On the first page, Veidt refers to the Burroughs cut-up technique, yep. which is a reference to William Burroughs, who works in uh, who in works such as Naked Lunch and Nova Express, use multi-strand narratives that may or may not interweave and overlap. This is exactly what Moore and Gibbons have been doing in their work on Watchmen as they use this technique to tell their story. I first heard about the Burroughs cut-up technique in 1984 after watching a Bowie documentary called Cracked Actor, where he revealed how he wrote the lyrics for the Diamond Dog song Sweet Thing slash Candidate Sweet Thing reprise. Uh, that's also chapter 497 in my ongoing series. <laughs> Hamo brings everything back to Bowie. But right. uh, uh, yeah, that's interesting that that first kind of sense of him talking about the Burroughs technique and go, oh yeah, you kind of been doing that to us. Isn't that when we first get an idea of how sinister he is? Because he's sitting right. there in his Antarctic hideaway yep. and he's looking at what, 40 screens, yeah. uh, which are showing... 40 different TV shows. Yeah. Maybe we've seen him do that before. I think we may have seen him do Maybe, that earlier. Maybe, yeah. But he's sitting there watching the world uh, present itself to him as a kind of gigantic video collage and drawing general impressions from yeah. it. Uh, I've I got a theory about all this. I've been, mm. I've been writing for my new book quite a bit about um, uh, Renaissance ideas of magic and alchemy. And it, this, it seems to me that the way these things work is, is like this. This is quite Jungian. Is, is that these, these old magic practices, the way you read tea leaves or coffee grinds right. or tarot cards 
What what I, the, this is what how I think they work. I, I think the way they work in this way is that you 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 need a kind of a playful mind. Mm-hmm. And when you when you stare at the tea leaves at the bottom of the cup or the coffee grinds that form whatever shapes they do, they form a kind of a matrix that holds the conscious mind still and pinch it and pins it down and right. distracts it, so that the subconscious mind which has been doing all sorts of work on your behalf that doesn't reveal itself properly and fully to you, can, can sort of suddenly throw out thoughts and ideas that seem like intuition or ESP or whatever it is. But really, it's the product of subconscious thought and processing and rationalization that deals in that world of sign and, signs and symbols. Right. So you can get these sudden flashes of insight from the subconscious mind, uh, where, which, which can only be gleaned if you pin down rational thought that that rational part of the brain, the left brain that says, if that, then this, uh, in the tea leaf cup, in the coffee grinds, on the tarot card, just to hold it in place so the subconscious mind can have a bit of a run around for a bit. Right. Throw out whatever insights it's been gleaning while you're asleep or whatever else is going on. And that's what I think is, is this approach. I think that that vast bank of monitors is a way of him letting his eye trip around it and hold his, his conscious mind in place while subconscious thoughts can come forward. This right. is what Burroughs is doing in, right. in, in his collage approach. Have you noticed the kind of thoughts you have when you really want to go to sleep? If you you can oh, trick yeah. your brain into going to sleep sometimes. If you if you just let one thought follow the other, no matter how absurd, and that way you can get into that dream state really, really quickly. Right. And that's kind of lovely. That's the kind of side of the brain's thinking, I think, that's at work there in that Burroughs collage cut up technique. It's a really good creative aid. Yeah. Know, putting a whole lot of words together, jumbling them all up, throwing on the on the on the in front of you and just see what the mind makes of them. And see what and see what you find. Uh, see what you find. Yeah. And that's where that's that the subconscious mind can glom onto that and go, yeah. Oh, that's what this thing is I've been talking about all this time. Right. because uh, we're also very good at looking for patterns and yes, in, yes, in, yes, yes. It's yes. Uh, isn't it a um it's a way it, it started as a way of protecting ourselves. Like you'd be able to see a pattern in something and you'd know don't go near that that's right you walk walk past Ugg's cave yeah and he clubs you over the head yeah you walk past it the next day he clubs you over the head yeah walk past the next day he clubs you over the head you go hang on yeah if I do this again tomorrow yeah this this might not be good this might not be good right you know what on Thursday I'm not going to walk past Ugg's cave right right that's 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 what I think is going on there yeah Great. Uh, the uh, and, it, and, it, and it manifests in like trees and stuff, isn't it? Like that's where they'd start seeing, uh, you know, you, they'd see faces in trees and because mm. you're looking to apply. Clouds. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, on page three, Rorschach drops a sugar wrapper showing that he, it's just funny following the sugar all the way through this series mm. and uh, that's the thing that gives him, uh, gives Asia, um, gives Dan away to the, to the cops is that they find the same sugar there that they found in his uh, pockets, etc. So I love that he's um, obviously got a sweet tooth, but also doesn't really give a shit about litter either. No, I'm offended <laughs> you know, by that. For, for someone who's very, you know, morally, you know, oh, yeah, I've got to do the right thing. It's just yeah. like, he's a really tiresome, sanctimonious prick, Rorschach. Oh, he's awful. And then he's just leaving this litter around yeah. in, in Antarctica. <laughs> of all places. In Antarctica. Uh on that same page, Rorschach uses the phrase Heart of Darkness, which refers to Joseph Conrad's 1899 novella of the same name, also the inspiration for Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever read that? No, I, and this is one of those embarrassing things. I have tried to read Heart of Darkness right. uh, several times, but it's kind of defeated me. There's something about Conrad's prose 
the nature of it. I can't sort of glom onto it. Um, it's one of those things where I, I guess I'm too dumb for it. I don't know. I, I, I'm really disappointed because it's very much, by the sound of things, my cup of tea. Right. Uh, but I've never been able to, to stick with it. I find my mind wandering and um, it sort of embarrasses me. I've got a copy that sits on my shelf and it sort of glares at me from time to time and it says to me, really? You've, oh. read, you've read Tolstoy and Nietzsche? Yeah. And what, you're frightened of me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I have those books as well where you look and you think, I'm going to crack this. Yes. But um, you fail. Eventually they're the ones that I give to people as presents. Yes. <laughs> I did fail. <laughs> you you read James Joyce. Um, Hamilton's a re-gifter. That's what we've just learned. <laughs> Plenty of revelations in this podcast. That's my uh, that, that's my uh, secret that I've been holding on to for a long time. Um, on page eight, panel four, we can just make out Veidt's parents' names, uh, Frederick Werner and Ingrid Renata. Uh, and I guess around the time that they... Um, uh, Moved to America, they would have been fleeing Europe as uh, Hitler uh, kind of really took a stranglehold. It's not. It does it say where they're from? Yes, I can just see that they they do have Germanic names, yeah. don't they? Um, um, and and I guess I suppose I suppose I I oh no, his parents reached America in yeah. his, the year of his birth, nineteen thirty nine, the year of the Second World War yeah. breaks out in Europe, but not in America. Yeah. Uh, so yes, they're migrants from. From Germany, I yeah. suppose, or from the Nordic states, or something. Yeah. yeah, and he's you know so very blonde, very blue eyed. Yes, yes, maybe he's a Scandi boy. I yeah. suppose. Yeah, the, the Ubermensch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in the Hitlerian idea of it. Yeah. Uh, on page nine, panel eight, we see uh, Aileen give Joey a book of poetry called Knots. Uh, she rips it in half, so it's another example of cutting the knot. Uh, that uh, b- book yes. of poetry is written by R. D. Lang. He believed that mental illness could be a transformative experience in which mental distress could lead to important insights that would allow the person to become a happier person. That's amazing. I mean, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I missed that entirely. So there oh. you are. Um, I, what do you say? I mean, that level of detail, oh, attention to detail. And, and, and really, what's the message behind all this? That there's no coincidences. There's gorgeous right. symmetries. I mean, he quotes from William Blake's Tiger, tiger, poem, yeah. all the way through. You know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could shape thy fearful symmetry? And one of the chapters is called Fearful Symmetry. There's, there's symmetries all the way through this book. Yeah. And then through so much of his work as yeah. well. The people are unaware of. Yeah. So they're, 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 these two women, they're having their fight. They're reenacting. They're enacting some kind of symmetry that they as characters are unaware of. Right. Um, that Moore is aware of and that clever chaps like you have spotted. Um it's, so what's, uh, that, what's the message of that? What, what does that tell you about the yeah. nature of the universe? Well, isn't that the uh, isn't that the the, the Morrison Grant Morrison uh, uh, thing that he he hates about it is that there's kind of no fluidity to it. There's nothing. Everything's so tight. It's such a tightly constructed universe that there's n- there's no room or space for something to just happen for the sake of happening. Well, yeah, I I, I suppose so, but I. I think that keeps the narrative flowing, like the, yeah. the nine panel pages, one after the other. But that moment right at the end when um, we're, we're seeing uh, him tell the story of his plan to bring the alien, mm. teleport it to New York City, and then Adri- um, um, uh, Night Owl says to him, this is ridiculous, what yeah. are this crazy plan of yours? When were you planning to do it? And then the page opens right up. There's just three panels on yeah. the page. And there's a fair bit of expanse. Suddenly yeah. there's 
this feeling of revelation because it's opened up right. for the first time. Right. It's just three panels. And he says, do it. You know, I did it 35 minutes ago. Then the next two images are just, there's a reaction shot from the, as you see the, the minute, one minute to midnight on the yeah. clouds. And then you see the intersection back in New York again. So suddenly you have that feeling of the music changing. Yes. It's like the music stops suddenly. Yeah. It's like that moment in the movie where you don't have the, the thunderclap. Yeah. Everything goes silent. Right. When there's the major revelation. He's really good at hearing the music in, in uh, language and, yeah. in, and in the pictures. And, uh, of course, he does it in front of the... Uh, the image of Alexander uh, the Great, great. cutting the Gordian Knot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I guess... Um, I wonder if it's, uh, you know... I guess maybe he's saying with that scene that everything kind of... As above, so below, isn't it? It's kind of that theory yeah, as well, is, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah, it's kind of a very, um, it's a very um, Neoplatonic view of the world that yeah. that um, everything has. There are all these invisible correspondences at work. That, yeah, that um, that we just need to see. We we, we need that, that are imperceptible, um, but they're put there by God. Right. Uh, that that's what people, intellectuals in the Renaissance believe that that the that the whole universe was made up of beautiful. Uh, magnificent correspondences based on the 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 uh, tablet of Hermes Trismegistus, which is uh, as above, so below. That, right. that that's the theme, all the way through that 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 worldview, and it seems to be just just everywhere. Yeah. But here's a really important question you haven't asked: mm. How is it that night owl and Rorschach can hear when their ears are completely covered by them their, their cows, <laughs> Justin? I mean, I mean, there's this p- panel; it, it's in there in profile, and yeah. and and. And Ozymandias says, I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah. And, and we're seeing the reaction from Night Owl and Rorschach. Yeah. Shouldn't they be saying pardon? Yeah, maybe maybe the reason they're silent is because they're waiting for the other one to say, sorry, what was that? What was that? <laughs> what? Huh? Anyway, just, I just want to put that out there. I said I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah, I said, oh, God, never That's mind. The- Whatever. We need Mel Brooks to make a superhero for me. Yeah. That would be that would be the whole climax. <laughs> um the what, oh, on page fifteen, Rorschach refers to Hitler as being a vegetarian, which is true. Called himself a vegetarian, even though he would enjoy an occasional slice of ham and some caviar. Also reportedly used to cover his eyes anytime he saw scenes in which animals were treated cruelly. Yeah. Or it's, a, it's a common thing of psychopaths. They they feel sentimental um affection towards babies and animals. Yeah. Uh, everything else. Hitler wrote this document on his plan to invade Poland. Uh, he wrote in the margins this extraordinary line. It was something along the lines of no pity, greatest severity. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Touchy-feely Hitler. Yeah. Touchy-feely for dogs, yeah. babies and cakes. Yeah, and that's it. That's it. <sighs> Tough times. Um, <laughs> in the understatement of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, on page 16, Veidt sees uh, Rorschach creeping up behind him in the reflection of the bowl. I love that. Uh, that's a technique that Sherlock Holmes once used with Watson in The Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, where uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, deduces something and uh, you must have eyes in the back of your head. Um, I reckon that panel, uh, I think that image is... Uh, used in The Dark Knight Rises when you first see Bruce Wayne walking up, but you haven't seen him for the whole movie at the start and you see his reflection coming up in a bowl. 
but I would pick up on that because I've watched that movie stacks of heaps of times. Yeah, I I, I love that image. Yeah, so do I. I, yeah. I, I like that. There's only one word in that whole page after they've tried to creep up on him. Yeah, you've seen them reflected in the golden terrine or the bowl, and um, so it looks over his shoulder as Rorschach's hands are coming, pins down his arm holds it in place with a fork. I don't know if that's ever really possible, but anyway. Uh, and then punches him in the face and says, manners, marvellous. Um, <laughs> he, he, so he so easily deflects them, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that was also, you know, like that's, uh, once again, that's the undercutting of the normal superhero story where you'd at least get a three-page fight. Yes. And this is done so quickly. And they just can't see things on the same scale that he no. can. No, That's the thing, isn't it? Uh, on page 19, panel 9, you can see the diagonal blood splash across Night Owl's left shoulder, but the black area on his hand, uh, Dave Gibbons has said, was probably an unnoticed ink smudge on ah, the original artwork. I'm just looking at that now. Yeah. Marvellous. Hilarious. Uh, on page 23... Or a bit of bubastus poo. Possibly. Oh, yeah. Could be some bubastus poo. Pooed on his hand. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, that would stop him. Sorry, I just after talking about Nietzsche for so long, I feel like I'm yeah, going to be really gotta, juvenile. Got to, got to even sorry. things out. Yeah, uh, there's nothing funnier than high art meeting low art. Yeah, uh, well, it's a bit of the black stuff of Rorschach's mask. It looks like oh, a blob it's... from his mask that's just sort of. Oh God, it's got me in his glove. Oh, I'm not going to get this off for yeah. ages. Uh, on page 23, panel one, you can see uh, another example of the Gordian knot. Yes, a cut rope. Yeah, which is fun. Um, on page 24, we see in panels five and six images of nude women behind Vite and Blake as they're uh, doing their thing. Yes, but Vite's head, his head is tastefully yeah. concealing yeah. the lady's um, bathing suit area. Yeah. Uh, which suggests he's a, he's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's a gentleman, isn't he? I reckon that panel's very different 15 years into after Moore wrote this. <laughs> Don't you think? That yes. Is, uh, um, and then for people enjoying the series, on the final page of the interview with Veidt, he makes mention of the 7th Calvary and an advert for Nostalgia Perfume, which both have a very different life in the HBO show, which we will get to, Richard, and we will talk about at some other point. Um, but, yeah, that's something else to look out for. Um, any other thoughts before we finish up i just i have to say i enjoyed this the most of all the issues yeah i, I found this the most thrilling ep, thrilling and and uh i did have the thought at the end of it that no matter what comes after this it's going there's no way that what comes comes after this is going to ever uh satisfy me right uh, and the final issue is is pretty good it is, yeah. it is kind of amazing and it's yeah it's, it's right up there i think that right. final issue uh but i i just really wondered how how it could be any better than this. In the same way, just off the top of my head, watching the Ozymandias episode of Breaking Bad, oh, yeah. which is the third to last in the series. Which some people consider... The greatest the f- episode of the whole yeah. thing, which I think is... is, yeah. is to, in the, I was shaking at the end of that. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that scene of Skylar running out onto the street is... You know, I was watching it on a TV, but it felt like I was watching it IMAX. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, it's just completely shattering. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it felt like that to me in a way. Isn't that funny, yeah. all these parallels there? It felt like that. It wasn't the last ep, but uh, it was something that could not possibly be equaled. Yeah. Uh, just that sense you get reading this chapter of the whole scope of this story just inflating yeah. massively. Uh, and and the, the that lovely feeling of when you perceive the ambition of Alan Moore right. uh, in, in writing this story. 
and, and yet he sort of pins you to the page won't let you go. You yeah. really feel totally absorbed in that in that narrative, and he still can do that. Yeah, I've gone. I think I've gone back and read uh, Providence now about seven or eight times. Yeah, it's that right, strong. Right. Uh, that way, he can pin you to the page. Yeah, uh, and make you really feel the moment and pull you up short, and you create these moments of horror and and breathtaking weirdness. Uh, Fascinating it, colors in this. Uh, it's a it's a it's a for the most part a very different uh, color palette, isn't it? For um, this uh, issue as well. A lot of secondary colours. Yeah. So there's purples, greens, and oranges all the yeah. way through, which reminds me a lot of 70s comics. There was a lot of secondary yeah. colours in 70s comics. Yeah. I thought that at the time. I thought this has got some kind of, I don't know, um, 70s Marvel comic feel to it, which I really liked. Power Man and Iron Fist, you know, that kind yeah, of yeah. colour scheme. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's... Uh, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it uh, that way before, but it is kind of like it, it goes from being a detective story, who killed the comedian, to oh, I've been, I have not been reading this correctly. Mm-hmm. It's a much bigger story, which yes. is quite fascinating. He's taking you through the looking glass. Yeah, you walked around right around to the side and to the back of the story, and you walked around it in three sixty degrees. And you go, oh my god, that's what was going on. Man, so much of our lives is like that, isn't it? Yeah, uh, where where you find out the fuller story only later on, and you go. Oh, God, that's what was going on. Right. Yeah, I feel like that happens all the time. And uh, before we go, I'm springing this on you. Do you want to give us a tight two minutes on why The Irishman was great? Oh, The Irishman was exceptional, I think. The Irishman, I I just loved it. To me, I felt like watching it sometimes, it felt like almost an apology for Goodfellas and Casino, which was so enjoyable. Maybe we enjoyed that too much. Yeah. Maybe we enjoyed the the, 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 the violence of and the thrill of, of the violence uh, and the pace of all that so much. Yeah. Because it begins with um, Henry Hill saying, all my life I wanted to be a gangster. Yeah. And, and, and great music. Da, yeah. Da, 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 da. You know, it's big. It's, it's grandiose. It's huge. And, yeah. and, and so we, we kind of really enjoy uh, being caught up in that life and we kind of enjoy the thrill and the and the, the squalor of it at the same time. And right. The, the moral... Uh, but then, then they show you that amazing Copacabana scene where... Where you, you get the sense of the of the life mm. and, and the and the privileges it affords it affords you, uh, and, and I suppose you think of all the all the killing scenes that take place in the Irishman, they're very they're shot at a distance mm. or uh, a middle distance. Um, there's no music. Mm. There's there, there's no sudden zoom. Yeah. There's no none of that. It's just like done in a hallway somewhere. Oh yeah, when Hoff, Jimmy Hoffa's killed. That's not a spoiler because we all know everyone knows Jimmy Hoffa got killed. Yeah, uh, when he, when he's kind of shot in the hallway in that house. Ah, oh, and it's and it's it's really like it's it's shot so cleverly in that it looks really cumbersome. Like so many of the deaths are really not. Uh, there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing no. slick about it. It's it's really awkward and and not done properly. And you know, even the guy in the restaurant, which might be the most for lack of a better word, thrilling of the of the murders, it's still he's not doing it very well. I think it's showing us the moral consequences of murder, mm. and and that's a fascinating thing to do. The only other film I can think of that's done that has been uh, the Unforgiven, right? The Eastwood film, you know, yeah. where, where uh, uh, what's his name, Mundy? Uh, Will, um, uh, Will is it Will, Bill Mundy? Bill, yes, he says, you know, it's a hell of a thing to kill a man. You take away everything he's got and everything he's going to have. Yeah, and and the kid who's been full of full of piss and vinegar all the way through it about how he's going to kill man. And when he actually does it, he's just so... The, the taboo that we have, right. most of us have against killing each other, um, just just hits him and yeah. traumatises this kid. Yeah. And uh, But by the end in The Irishman, 
uh, the, the uh, Robert De Niro character, he's just left without feeling. In yeah. Life. And he knows something's missing and his daughters can bear, hardly bear to look at him. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought that was so powerful. I love that film. And the use of Anna Paquin in that really pivotal role where she barely says anything for the whole movie. But it's uh, it's kind of like the first Scorsese film in many ways that has the female gaze. Yeah, And that's where it's and yes. judging, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, women don't often figure much in these movies. The Goodfellas has got an exception insofar as you have um, uh, his wife. Mm. His name is Lorraine Bracco. Lorraine Bracco's character. Uh, and, we, and he tells a large part of the story through her eyes. Mm. And that's kind of really amazing too. But but he's mainly interested in what the men are doing in, mm. in his movies. Um, uh, so yeah, that's even weird. a movie like Age of Innocence, which is you know I love Age of Innocence. I do but too. It's, um, it's still through Daniel Day Lewis's eyes mm-hmm. in many ways. Indeed. Uh, so so yes, to having having Anna Packwood sitting there, and we can sort of sit in her behind her eyes, can't we? Yeah, yeah, because you're watching her as a little girl, watching her dad pack her pack his bag to go off and shoot someone, and and then shit. kick the shit out of someone in the street. Yeah, yeah, and you know. It's it's really important to have an uh, an actor of her stature because it drives home how important it is. And I see I've seen some people sort of criticise, saying, "Oh, I can't believe you have her in the in the role and she doesn't say anything." And it's like, but she's oh, she all the more plenty. powerful for yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of silent judgment yeah. is so incredibly powerful. Pretty much the only thing she says is, uh, "Have you called Jimmy's wife?" Yes. And that that moment that's the moment he kind of unravels because it's like he doesn't he doesn't know how to mimic. What a normal person would do at that point. Why? Why would I call the wife? Yes, like doesn't that, know how to mimic it. No. Yeah, and he's completely lost. Uh, yeah, I think one of the clever things about that movie is they show for the first time the connection between what some soldiers were asked to do in World War Two, mm. and how it's the, the deadening of their souls that must have come for that. Mm. That scene with the German soldiers in the in the woods, uh, and we don't know what the commanding officer has told him, but we know along, along the lines is like. These two German POWs, we can't take them with us. Go mm. out and just deal with it. Yeah, you know, there's never, there's never going to be the order like take them into the forest and murder them. Mm. It's going to be just get them off my hands. Yeah, uh, and he hears that and he does it. And these men have dug their own and they've you know pleading for their lives. And yeah. you shoot them, you shoot them dead. Yeah, and it's a, it's you shouldn't do that. <sighs> that kind of that hardening of the heart. What is it like calcification mm. of the heart? that's taken place with him over years has alienated from his daughters and he barely understands it. Uh, to the point where he kicks the shit out of that shopkeeper Yeah, in the street, breaks his hand and thinks his daughter's going to like that. Mm. And thinks his daughter's going to admire that. Yeah. And a fascinating final scene as well. Like yeah. it's like, a, you know, the Godfather finishes with us closing the door to women and this is the man who just wants the door left open hoping someone's going to walk through it. Oh, I thought it was outstanding. I did too. I did too. Um, and also before we go, when's your next book due? Next year, midway through next year. Okay. All right. Looking forward to it's that. It's called The Golden Maze. That's the name of it. Right. Can you say anything about it? Yeah, it's a history of the city of Prague. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's going to be, It's it comes from my own experience. I was there during the Velvet Revolution period at the end of the 1980s when all those communist governments fell over in Eastern and Central Europe and... Mm. Prague, there was no more place. I mean, Berlin, on top of the Berlin Wall, was, was pretty joyous. But in Prague, it was magic. It right. was magic. And it's it's the most magical of cities. And it's got this incredible history to it. It's been a lot of fun research. And um, 
and it's going to, it's one of those books that's going to be bulging at the seams with stories. Oh, great. Mm. Great. All right, I should let you go. You're a busy man. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. A big thank you to Richard Fadler for giving me some of his time to record these podcasts. Make certain you check out both of his books, Ghost Empire and Saga Land, which are great reads and also might make for some pretty fantastic last second Christmas gifts. If you enjoy the mellifluous tones of Fadler's voice, you'll love his books as the words carry that cadence from the page straight to the brain. Please give us a nice review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast. And don't forget, if you're in Adelaide, tickets are on sale for my new shows. Uh, The stand-up show is appearing in Melbourne and Sydney. But if you'd like to see the play, let me know on our Big Squid Facebook page. And maybe we can set up a secret show just for you ink spots. A big hello to everyone all over the world. And I hope you're relaxing and celebrating the festive season in whichever manner that you enjoy. Uh, Mum and I are card-carrying atheists, so we're going to eat and watch movies. Uh, I showed her Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the other night, so I think we're going to watch the Sharon Tate movie. I think maybe we'll get some more Brad Pitt goodness into us with Ad Astra, and uh, who knows where we'll go from there. Um, maybe maybe I'll see if we can uh, watch If Bill Street Could Talk, get a little extra Regina King goodness into us. Yeah, that sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm missing her this week. <laughs> it's really weird, isn't it? Anyway, uh, whatever your faith, wherever you are, I hope you're happy. And I hope you're surrounded by loved ones and uh, I hope you're relaxing. One more podcast to come in this season. Thanks once again for giving me some of your time. It is very much appreciated. Until then.